thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. Customs of the Scottish Freemasons in the 17th century. The Freemasons of the 16th century in Scotland appear to have been divided into two classes, the incorporations and the lodges. These, although not exactly like the Masons' company and the lodges of England, may be considered as being of the same type. In 1475, the mayor and town council of Edinburgh chartered the incorporation of Masons and Rights, and Rights is a term meaning worker taken from the Anglo-Saxon. In this body, two Masons and two Rites were selected and sworn to see that all work was properly done, to examine all newcomers into the town who were seeking employment, to make the necessary rules for the reception and government of apprentices, to settle disputes between the craftsmen, to bury the dead, and generally to make laws for the two trades of Masons and Rites. Incorporations were also invested in Glasgow and other cities with the same liberties. Disputes, repeatedly and naturally, arose between these incorporations and the lodges with whose privileges and regulations they sought to interfere. But early in the 17th century, the former ceased to exercise some of their offensive prerogatives, and especially that of receiving and admitting fellows of the Mason's craft. However, as Brother Lyon justly observes, the fact that rights were present with Masons at the passing of apprentices to the rank of fellow favors the opinion that the ceremony of passing was simply a testing of the candidate's fitness for employment as a journeyman. But the incorporations were really outside bodies having their origin in the city officials' spirit of control and interference. When studying the Masonic rules and customs of the 17th century, we must look really to the lodges and to what is suggested or developed of them in the Shaw and other statutes, and in the early minutes of the lodges that have been preserved. The assertion of Anderson, Preston, and other writers of the 18th century, as well as some of later date, that there was from the earliest period a government of the craft in England by a grandmaster has been proved to be wholly unsound. Something of the kind appears, however, to have been the case in Scotland, at least from the end of the 16th century. William Shaw, in his signature written at the foot of the statutes enacted by him, and in various records going back as far as 1583, calls himself, and is called, the King's Master of Work. This is a very common title in the Middle Ages, but by no means indicated that the possessor of it was a Mason or a Freemason. The Magister Operis, or Master of the Work, sometimes called the Magister Operum, or Master of the Works, was an officer to whom was entrusted the oversight of the public works. Sometimes, but not necessarily, he was an architect. Therefore, Anderson always calls these masters of the works grand masters, an error which has a very unfortunate effect in confusing true Masonic history. The office was one of the church as well, and in early times the monk who was made the master of the work superintended the workmen employed by the monastery in conducting repairs or erecting buildings. We must not conclude that Shaw was, from being called by this title, an operative Freemason. 
the evidence, though circumstantial, is really pointed the other way. Indeed, the office of King's Master of the Work was an old one in Scotland, and Shaw himself in 1583 succeeded Sir Robert Drummond in the office. But we find that in 1600, as it appears from a minute of the Lodge of Edinburgh, Shaw presided over a Masonic trial. To do this, he must have been a member of the craft. He was, therefore, it is to be supposed, a non-professional who was admitted to the honorary membership, and he is only one instance among many of the adoption into the brotherhood of persons who were not actual stonecutters. The reader must note that in that minute, Shaw is described as the principal warden and chief master of masons. Now this title of principal warden is the same as that called in the statutes of 1599, the Lord Warden General. This office of Warden General, or General Warden as it is also called, approaches nearer to the idea of a Grand Master than anything that we can find in Anderson's constitutions in respect to the English Freemasons. The General Warden appears, according to the Scottish statutes, to have been possessed of several important rights. He had the power of calling the representatives of the lodges to a general assembly. He prepared and issued the statutes for the government of the craft. The election of wardens in the particular lodges was to be submitted to him for his approval. And he exercised a general oversight over all the lodges. In short, the general warden was, in fact, though not in name, the Grand Master of the Freemasons in Scotland. There is some confusion about the names of the officers of the private lodges. In some instances, we find the presiding officer called the deacon, and in others the warden. But it has been explained that the warden was recognized as the head of the lodge in its relations with the general warden, while the deacon was the chief of the Freemasons in their incorporated capacity, and also the head of the lodge. Sometimes, both offices were united in the same person, who was then called the deacon of the Masons and the warden of the lodge. As a general rule, however, the warden appears to have been the presiding officer of the lodge, the keeper of its funds, and the giver of its charities. That he held a position over the deacon is evident from the fact that when both are spoken of in a minute or in a regulation, the warden is named before the deacon. It is always the warden and deacon, and never the deacon and warden. Both officers were elected by the votes of the master masons of the lodge, and the election was held annually. In every lodge there were three classes of members, masters, fellows, and apprentices. But it must be remarked that these were only three ranks or working positions, and that they do not by any means indicate that there were three degrees, in the sense in which that word is now understood by modern Freemasons. The masters were those who undertook contracts for building and were responsible to their employers for the fidelity shown in doing the work. The fellows were the journeymen who were employed by these master builders, and the apprentices were those youths who were engaged under the masters in getting a knowledge of their craft. If there was a ceremonial of initiation or reception and secret knowledge of certain mysteries, that ceremony and that knowledge must have been common to and participated in by each of the three classes. Whatever was the Freemason's secret, the apprentice knew it as well as the master. For one of Shaw's regulations required that at the admission or reception of a master or fellow, there should be present besides six masters, two entered apprentices. Whence it is evident that little, if anything, could have been taught to the newly accepted master that the apprentice did not already possess. That the ceremony of initiation was in the 17th century a very simple one is evident from the slight references to it in the minutes of the lodges. The statutes of 1598 required it to be performed in the presence alike of masters and apprentices, which shows, as has already been said, that it was a ceremony known to both. 
This appears to have consisted principally of the giving of what was called the Mason Word, and a few secrets connected with it, which are called in one of the old minute books, the secrets of the Mason Word. What these secrets were is now impossible to discover. But as we have seen that the Scottish craft customs were originally derived from the English and the Continental Freemasons, it is most probable that the secrets of the word and the ceremonies of initiation were much the same as those described in the Sloan manuscript, heretofore quoted as practiced by the English Freemasons, and those described by Findel as used by the German Freemasons in the 12th century. The Squaremen were companies of rites and slaters in Scotland who were very intimately connected with the Freemasons and who appear to have had, in many respects, quite similar, if not the same, customs. Now these squaremen had a ceremony of initiation, a word which was called the squareman's word, and secret methods whereby one member could know another. In the ceremony of initiation, which was called the brithering, the candidate was blindfolded and prepared in other ways. An oath of secrecy was taken by him, and after the performances, which were secretly conducted, were finished, a dinner was given, the expenses of which were paid by the fee of initiation. The banquet was in fact so important a part of the ceremony of initiation among the Freemasons that special provision for it was made by Shaw, the Warden General, in the Statutes of 1598. Apprentices were to pay on their admission six pounds to common banquet, and the fellow crafts paid ten pounds. The fellow craft was also required to provide the lodge with ten shillings worth of gloves. Brother Mackey was of opinion that nothing more clearly proves the connection of the Scottish with the Continental Freemasons than this reference in the statutes of the former to the article of gloves to be provided for the lodge. The use of gloves as a portion of the dress of an operative Freemason is shown in early records to have been very common from the early times on the continent. M. Didrin gives in the Annals Archaeologiques several examples from old documents of the presentation of Freemasons and stonecutters of gloves. Thus, in 1381, the Chatelaine of Vienne bought a large quantity of gloves to be given to the workmen, and the reason mentioned for the gift is that they might shield their hands from the stone and lime. In 1383, three dozen gloves were given to the Freemasons when they began the buildings at the Chartreuse of Dijon. At Amiens, 22 pairs of gloves were given to the Freemasons. The use of gloves seems to have been among the several crafts peculiar to the Freemasons, and their use is well explained as being intended for protection against the corrosive nature of the mortar which the workmen were compelled to handle. When operative was followed by speculative Freemasonry, the use of this article of dress was not abandoned. In the Continental Masonic ceremonies to this day, the candidate is required to present two pair of gloves to the lodge on the night of his initiation. But the explanation now made of their use, of course, refers to them as symbols. Another important ceremony connected with advancement to a higher rank in the fraternity was the production of the assay, essay, or trial piece of work. A very common custom among the early Continental Guilds was to require of every apprentice to any trade before he could be admitted to his freedom and the rights of a journeyman that he should present to the guild into which he sought membership a piece of finished work as a specimen and a proof of his skill in the art in which he had been instructed. This custom was adopted among the Scottish Freemasons. When an apprentice had served his time of probation and was desirous of being advanced to the rank of a fellow or journeyman, he was required by the statutes to present an essay or piece of work to prove his skill and fully qualified knowledge of the trade. At first, the privilege of inspecting and judging the character of this trial piece was entrusted to the lodges, but afterwards it seems to have been taken from them and given to the incorporations. These, however, resigned this duty early in the 17th century. 
When an apprentice wished to become a fellow, he applied to his lodge, which in Edinburgh referred him to the incorporation of masons and rites of St. Mary's Chapel. By that body, the piece of work to be done was specified. Essay masters were appointed to attend the candidate and see that he did the work himself. When the task was done, it was submitted to the brethren, who, by an open vote, admitted or rejected the piece of work. Brother Lyon very correctly finds a parallel to these essay pieces of the Scottish operative masons in the examinations for advancement from a lower to a higher degree found in the speculative lodges. But he is wrong in supposing that these tests for advancement were, in the inflated language of the Masonic diplomas of the last century, characterized as the wonderful trials which the neophyte had had the fortitude to sustain before attaining to the sublime degree of Master Mason. The wonderful trials thus referred to were not the examinations to which the neophyte had been subjected to test his proficiency in the preceding degrees. They were the actual ceremonies of initiation through which he had passed. Considering their severity in the Continental Lodges, it is hardly an inflation of language to speak of some fortitude being needed to sustain them. Annually, both the masters and the fellows were required to renew their oath of fidelity and obedience to the rules of the Brotherhood, and especially to take the obligation that they would not work with Callens. It was also provided by the statutes that yearly the fellows and apprentices should submit to an examination which should test their memory and knowledge of the principles of the art. Now, as it would not have been fair to expect an apprentice or fellow to remember what he had never been taught, this rule led to the introduction of a particular class of persons in the lodges who were called intenders or instructors, whose duty it was to instruct the newly admitted persons in the principles of the art. This custom, according to Brother Lyon, still prevails in some of the Scottish lodges. In the United States, it is a very general practice at the present day to provide an apprentice as soon as he has been initiated and a fellow craft when he has passed with an instructor whose duty it is to drill each of them accurately in the lecture of the degree into which he has just been admitted so that when he applies for advancement, he may be able to answer the questions that will be asked and thus prove that he has made due proficiency. The changing over of operative into speculative Freemasonry, which took place soon after the beginning of the 18th century, is the most important part of the history of the institution. The gradual approaches to that condition in which the operative element was wholly displaced by the speculative must therefore be regarded with great interest. These approaches are marked by the introduction of persons who were not workmen masons into the operative lodges. Occasion has been had, therefore, to speak of the reception by a lodge of operative Freemasons at Warrington in England of two gentlemen who certainly were not operative masons, namely, Colonel Mainwaring and Elias Ashmole. This event occurred in the year 1646, and it is the earliest record in England of the acceptance of a non-professional member by a lodge of operative Freemasons. We must remember that it does not, however, follow, because this reception is the first that is found to be recorded, that it was therefore the first that took place. On the contrary, it is most probable that the custom of receiving non-operative members was a very old one. It had, as we have seen, been practiced by the Roman colleges of artificers, and was by them brought into the early craft and trade guilds, and in due course was imitated by the more modern operative lodges. The practice still exists in the London livery companies, which we know are the successors of the trade guilds of the Middle Ages. Moreover, in Scotland, the custom of admitting non-operatives into the lodges has a much older record than that of England to which we have just referred. A minute of the Lodge of Edinburgh on the date of June 8th in the year 1600, an exact reproduction of which is given by Brother Lyon, 
records the presence at the meeting of the lodge of William Boswell, Laird of Auchinleck. The communication was called for the purpose of considering a penalty that had been imposed upon the warden. The Laird of Auchinleck took a part in discussing the affair, agreed to the decision at which the lodge arrived, and signed his name and put his mark to the minutes, just as did the operative Freemasons. There are very many other instances of the admission of men of title, persons whose positions placed them outside the rank of architects and masons, but acceptable as members. The case already cited of Boswell proves clearly that the practice existed before the close of the 16th century. If we had the records we might, it is fair to suppose, find many cases still earlier. Certainly Boswell's experience is not presented to us as being anything unusual. The presumption, therefore, is that the custom was not new, but how much older than that date we are unable to determine. At the admission of these gentlemen masons, as they were sometimes called, the ceremonies of initiation, whatever they were, appear to have been the same as those practiced in the reception of operative members. As in the present day, and in speculative Freemasonry, rank or any other condition secures no exemption. Several instances are recorded during the 17th century of brethren who were not operative Freemasons being elected to preside over lodges. Thus, Elphingston, who was the tutor of Erith and collector of the king's customs, was in 1670 one of the masters or past masters of the Lodge of Aberdeen. The Earl of Cassilis was in 1672 chosen as a deacon or head of the Lodge of Kilwinning. He had been preceded in the same office by Sir Alexander Cunningham in 1671 and by the Earl of Eglinton in 1670. Lord William Cochrane, the son of the Earl of Dundoland, was in 1678 elected warden of the same lodge. All these appointments were merely honorary, and intended, it is to be presumed, to secure the influence of the noblemen or men of wealth and rank who were there honored. They were not expected to perform any of the laborious duties of the office, for which task it is most probable that they were unfit. This, as Brother Lyon observes, may be inferred from the fact that when a nobleman or a laird, meaning lord, or owner of a state, or a landlord, was chosen to fill any of the offices named, deputies were elected from the operative members of the Kilwinning Lodge. The relation of women to Freemasonry in Scotland during the 17th century is worthy of attention. The reader has seen that in one of the English constitutions, when referring to the charges, it is written that one of the elders taking the book, and that he or she that is to be made a mason shall lay their hands thereon, and the charge shall be given. From this passage, and particularly the use of the word she, some persons have drawn the quite natural inference that females were admitted. Brother Hugin, in commenting upon it, thinks that the manuscript being a copy from a much older one, the word she was carelessly retained, and that it is only an evidence that females were admitted into the early guilds, a historical fact that cannot be denied. But he is not prepared to advocate the opinion that women were admitted into the mysteries of Freemasonry. He admits that the custom of the guilds to admit women was gradually given up. But, as the passage quoted is found only in the York Manuscript of 1693, it is more reasonable to suppose that the word she was a mistake of the copyist in writing they. Hence, we have no satisfactory evidence that women were connected by initiation in the usual manner with the Masonic lodges in England. Brother Lyon contends that the obligation of the apprentice to protect the interest of his dame, which is mentioned in the same manuscript, would indicate that it was lawful at that time in England for females, as employers, to do the work of Freemasons or Masons. This statement derives probability from the fact 
that at that time in Scotland, the widows and daughters of freemen masons were, under certain restrictions, permitted to exercise the privilege of burgesses or citizens in executing masons' work. Brother Lyon cites a minute of the Air Squareman Incorporation of the date of 1628, which enacts that every freeman's daughter shall pay for her freedom the sum of eight pounds. But it is clear that if a fine was imposed for the freedom, there must have been a privilege accompanying it, which could have been none other than the right to do a freeman's work. The Lodge of Edinburgh in 1683 recognized this privilege and qualified it by certain restrictions. It was then enacted that a widow should not undertake work or employ journeymen herself, but might have the benefit of the work under the favor of some freeman, by whose advice and concurrence the work shall be undertaken and the journeymen agreed with. The reader will see from these two minutes that from 1628 to 1683, women, the widows or orphans of masons, were in the habit of employing journeymen to do work given to them by the patrons or clients of their husbands or fathers. But this custom, growing into an evil, in time the women acting independently and assuming the position and exercising the rights of master masons, the Lodge of Edinburgh found it was necessary at length to correct the abuse and to restrict the privilege. The new law compelled the females to undertake the work and employ the journeymen under the direction of master masons, each of whom, acting for the widow, discharged the duties without receiving compensation, which was strictly forbidden, and gave her the profits. Another practice of the Scottish Freemasons in the 17th century was that of opening the lodge with prayer. There is no record of the existence of such a custom in England, although it is highly probable that the same practice prevailed in both countries. Freemasonry being a later institution in Scotland, we have seen that it took many of its customs from the sister kingdom. The use of prayer as an introductory ceremony has always been practiced in the English speculative lodges. Combining the circumstance with the fact now known that it was observed by the Scottish operatives, we have an additional reason for believing that it was a practice among the English operative masons of the 17th and earlier centuries. Brother Lyon says that in this act of opening with prayer, the Lodge of Edinburgh followed an example which had been set in the ancient constitutions of the English masons, which open and close with prayer. Here, our generally accurate historian appears to have fallen into an error by confounding the form of composition adopted in writing a manuscript with that of opening a lodge, two things evidently very distinct and different. We must, of course, admit that all the old English constitutions commence with a religious invocation and that they end either with a prayer for help or an imprecatory formula, a self-imposed form of penalty, like that found in the condition of the oath to keep the statutes. But in a careful examination of all these constitutions from the Regius to the Papworth manuscript, that is, from the first to that of a more nearly recent date, Brother Mackey failed to find any regulation or article which required that the business of lodge shall be preceded by prayer. The only regulation that is of religious bearing is the one that sets forth the necessity of a reverence for God and Holy Church and the avoidance of heresy or error. That it was the practice of the early English operative lodges to open and close with prayer is an opinion founded wholly on supposition, but for the reasons already given, the conclusion appears to be a probable one. But the use of prayer in the Scottish lodges of the 17th century is not a supposition. That is proved by actual records. Brother Lyon, in his invaluable work, to which we have been almost wholly indebted for the facts in the present and the preceding chapter, supplies us with two forms of prayers, one to be said at the convening and the other to be said before dismissing. Both are taken from the minute books of Mary's Chapel Incorporation for the year 1699, 
and it will be interesting to compare them with the oldest English formula, namely that given by Preston. The first of these, or the prayer at the opening of the lodge, is in the following words. O Lord, we most humbly beseech thee to be present with us in mercy, and to bless our meeting and hail exercise which we now have in hand. O Lord, enlighten our understandings and direct our hearts and minds, so with thy good spirit that we may frame all our purposes and conclusions to the glory of thy name and the welfare of our brethren. And therefore, O Lord, let no partial respect, neither of feed nor favor, draw us out of the right way, but grant that we may ever so frame all our purposes and conclusions to the glory of thy name and the welfare of our brethren. Grant these things, O Lord, unto us, and what else thou seest more necessary for us, and that only for the love of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, our alone Lord and Savior, to whom with thee, O Father, and the blessed Spirit of grace, we render all praise, honor, and glory forever and ever. Amen. The second prayer, or that used at the dismissal or closing of the lodge, is as follows. O Lord, we most humbly acknowledge thy goodness in meeting with us together at this time to confer upon a present condition of this world. O Lord, make us also study heaven and heavenly mindedness that we may get our souls for a prey. And O Lord, be with us and accompany us the rest of this day, now and forever. Amen. The importance of this record of prayers at opening and closing in the Scottish lodges is that it adds great force to the claim that a similar custom existed in the English lodges at the same period. The statement made by the biographer of Wren and quoted by Findle that the medieval Freemasons of England commenced their labor each day at sunrise by a prayer, the master taking his station in the east and the brethren forming in a half circle around him, it's a tradition. How much of the fact there is to this claim is a matter of doubt. There is the want of a trustworthy record coming down by reliable channels from that time, but the fact that there is such a record, absolutely reliable in the minutes of a Scottish lodge for the period, throws necessarily an impress of great probability on the tradition. That the record of the Scottish lodge is a minute made in the last year, but one of the 17th century, does not necessarily lead to the inference that the custom had just then begun. The record is more likely when there is no evidence to the contrary, to have been that of a custom long previously in existence than of one that had just been adopted. Therefore, we may fairly conclude that it was the practice of the Scottish lodges of the 17th century to open and close their meetings with prayer, a ceremony that we have reason to infer was also practiced by the English lodges of the same period. The last of the Scottish Masonic customs to which it is necessary to refer is that of the use of marks. These were employed instead of, or sometimes as additions to, the written signature. This is an interesting subject and requires a very careful and thorough study. The presence of certain figures or characters chiseled on the stones of a building has been remarked by travelers as occurring in almost all countries where architecture had made any progress, and at very early epochs. The remark was made by Ainsworth, an oriental traveler, that he found among some ruins in Mesopotamia that every stone, not only in the chief building, but in the walls and bastions and other public monuments, when not defaced by time, is marked with a character which is for the most part either a Chaldean letter or numeral. On the floor of a tomb at Agra in India, it was found that every stone was inscribed with a peculiar mark chiseled upon it by the workmen. Copies of over 60 of these marks were given in 1865 by a writer in the London Freemasons Quarterly Review. In an interesting work on architecture by George Godwin, the author, referring to the Freemasons of the Middle Ages, makes the following remarks. 
Several years ago, my attention was led to the fact that many of our ancient buildings exhibited on the face of the walls, both inside and outside, marks of a peculiar character on the face of the stones which were evidently the work of the original builders, and it occurred to me that if examined and compared, they might serve to throw light upon these bands of operatives. I made a large collection of them in England, France, Belgium, and Germany, some of which were published in the Archaeologia. These are simply the marks made by masons to identify their work, but it is curious to find them exactly the same in different countries and descending from early times to the present day. For in parts of Germany and Scotland, tables of marks are still preserved in the lodges, and one is given to the practical mason on taking up his freedom. He cuts it, however, on the bed of the stone now instead of on its face. The marks are usually two or three inches long. These marks were, it is evident, required by the masters or superintendents of the buildings in process of construction to be used by the workmen so that each one's work might be identified when blame or approval was to be rewarded. Each mark was a measure of precaution, and the employment of marks is no evidence unless the mark itself is of a purely Masonic character, that the workmen who used them were Freemasons. At first, it seems from the observations of Ainsworth, they were merely letters or numbers. Afterwards, those found at Agra were principally astronomical or mathematical. But when used by organized bands of Freemasons, we find among the marks such symbols as the hourglass, the pentalpha, and the square encompasses. When the Freemasons followed the precautionary system of the ordinary stonecutters and adopted the use of marks, they gave most generally a symbolic character to them, though sometimes they made the use of monograms taken from their own names. M. Didron, who discovered such marks at Spire, Worms, Strasbourg, Reims, Basel, and several other places, and who made a report of his investigations to the Historical Committee of Arts and Sciences of Paris, believed that he could discover in them reference to distinct schools or lodges of Freemasons. He divides them into two classes, those of the overseers and those of the men who worked the stones. The marks of the first class consist of monogrammatic characters, while those of the second are of the nature of symbols, such as shoes, trowels, and mallets. We think it is possible that something like this distinction is to be found in the old Scottish marks. Of the 91 marks, copies of which are given in exact reproduction by Brother Lyon as taken from the Minute Book of the Lodge of Edinburgh, 16 are evidently monograms, such as G-I-M-E-A-L-B-H-N-I, etc., while the remaining 75 are symbols, principally the cross in various forms, the triangle, the hourglass, represented by two triangles joined at their apices or angles, the pentalpha or star-shaped figure formed by five straight lines, etc. In one instance, the monogram and the symbol are combined, where David Salmon adopts as his mark a fish or salmon, with the head in the three-cornered form of the delta, or Greek letter, that is the same as D. There was undoubtedly a distinction of monogrammatic and symbolic marks, but whether Didron's idea that they belong to two different classes of workmen is correct or not, it is impossible for us to positively ascertain. Brother Lyon, however, says that in regard to the arrangement of marks into distinctive classes, one for apprentices, one for fellow crafts, and a third for foremen, the practice of the Lodge of Edinburgh, or that of Kilwinning, as far as can be learned from the records, was never in harmony with the teachings of tradition on that point. Some have supposed that the degree now called the Mark Master's degree was originally manufactured by certain ritual makers toward the close of the 18th century and attached as an extra degree to the ancient and accepted Scottish rite. Brother Mackey had in his possession the original charter granted in 1802 by the Grand Council of Princes of Jerusalem of Charleston, South Carolina, 
to American Eagle Mark Lodge No. 1. When Thomas Smith Webb was establishing his new system, he inserted the Mark degree in his ritual and made it the fourth degree of the American Rite, as it is practiced in the United States of America. It has been supposed that Webb derived his degree from the ancient and accepted Scottish Rite, and it is not improbable that he did so. More recently, it has been discovered that the degree of Mark Mason and that of Mark Master Mason was given in Scotland by a craft lodge as early as 1778. An excerpt made by the untiring student brother W.J. Hogg Hugan from the minutes of the lodge operative Banff under the date January 7, 1778, shows that the degree of Mark Mason was conferred on fellow crafts and that of Mark Master Mason on Master Masons. However, the earliest minute we can find is in the records of the Royal Arch Chapter at Portsmouth, England. This chapter was formerly number three of the Moderns, but is now 257. Formed in 1769, Brother Thomas Dunkirkley was then present as Provincial Grand Master. He gave the warrant to the new chapter, and the records in cipher go on to say, Having lately received the mark, he made the brethren Mark Masons and Mark Masters, and each choose their mark. He also told us of this man of writing, which is to be used in the degree which we may give to others, so they be fellow craft for Mark Masons and Master M for Mark Masters. The Mark degree was mentioned in the records for the early part of 1792 of St. Andrew's Chapter at Boston, Massachusetts. The striking and impressive ritual, as all rituals do, has of course grown gradually to its present extent. But it is hardly necessary to say that the allegory and the tradition of the origin of the degree at the Temple of King Solomon is merely a symbolic myth, wholly unsupported by historical authority. The statutes enacted by William Shaw in 1598 for the government of the Freemasons of Scotland direct that on the reception and admission of every fellow craft, his name and mark shall be inserted in the book or register of the lodge. The later lodge minutes show that giving or taking a mark was accompanied by a fee, which is paid by the fellow for this privilege. The minutes also show that apprentices were also permitted to select and use a mark. The position and rights of apprentices in the Scottish lodges is worthy of notice, especially as throwing some light on their condition in the English lodges, of which so little is said in the old constitutions. The presence of apprentices at the admission of fellow crafts was provided for us in the statutes of Shaw, as has already been seen. Another privilege granted to the apprentices was that of giving or withholding their assent to any proposed addition to their ranks in the lodge. They thus appear to have been so far recognized as active members, but Brother Lyon says that this concession does not appear to have been granted to all apprentices, but only to such as being bound for the freedom afterward became Mason Burgesses and members of the incorporation. Apprentices, whose aim was that of becoming qualified for employment as journeymen. If this view of Brother Lyon is correct, it would show an aristocratic distinction of rank, one which was certainly unknown to the English Freemasons. Apprentices were sometimes permitted to undertake work of no very great value on their own account, but with the consent of their masters, a privilege that does not appear to have been conceded by the English statutes. Passing an apprentice to the rank of a fellow craft, although not a ceremony which added anything to the store of his Masonic knowledge, was still necessary to the spreading of the influence and the increase of the funds of the lodge. Apparently, toward the end of the 17th century, Many apprentices were disinclined at the end of their time of service to undergo the trouble and expense of passing, but were disposed to work as unpassed journeymen. 
So at the beginning of the 18th century, it was made a duty for apprentices soon after their time of apprenticeship was out to make themselves fellow crafts. Fellow crafts or journeymen were permitted to have apprentices of their own, and it was provided by law that a master might employ such fellows and yet not also employ their apprentices, or he might employ the apprentice and not the fellow to whom he was bound. This seems to have been a peculiarity of Scottish Freemasonry in the 17th century. No similar provision is found in the English constitutions. Apprentices were prohibited from marrying, a very necessary provision considering their relation to their master's houses, which it may well be supposed existed in every other country. In all of these customs of the Scottish Freemasons in the 17th century, we see the features of an operative system. But this system was admitting the gradual entering wedge of the speculative element exhibited in the admission into the operative lodges of non-professional members. The progress of this transition from an operative to a speculative character is better marked, or rather better recorded, in the Scottish than in the English history of Freemasonry. Through the latter, we are aroused with suddenness from the viewing of the operative system as detailed in the manuscript constitutions extending into the very beginning of the 18th century to the unexpected forming, without previous notice, of a purely speculative Grand Lodge a very few years after the date of the last written constitution, which makes no reference to such an institution. But the Grand Lodge of Scotland was not organized until 19 years after that of the Sister Kingdom. The approaches to the change were gradual and well-marked, and the struggle which ended in the victory of speculative or modern Freemasonry has been carefully recorded. The story of the events which led to the establishment in the year 1736 of the Grand Lodge of Scotland form an interesting material for a distinct chapter, which we shall proceed to discuss in due season. And that ends the chapter. So next time around... We will weigh on Chapter 59, The French Guilds of the Middle Ages. As always, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.